0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star
1: of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
2: certainly a big story today, the big story the last few days, and how big a story it's going to be going forward, I guess, remains to be seen. But we now have a fifth variant of concern, and this could be the most problematic one yet. This was Canada's Health Minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, yesterday announcing the steps that Canada was taking to respond to this. They will quarantine until they get the result of a negative test. They will then be allowed to go if the test is negative, they will be allowed to go and quarantine in a safe and appropriate manner. They will be tested once more on the eight until they finish their quarantine. So that was uh, in response to questions about what we're going to do for travelers. Anyone who has been in that region and is traveling to Canada, we're also moving to ban flights from South Africa and a number of other Southern African countries. This variant, though, has shown up elsewhere. Belgium, Israel, Hong Kong, the United Kingdom today confirming its first two cases of this variant. Let me just play for you. This is a couple of minutes uh, from earlier today. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing these findings and announcing some additional steps that the United Kingdom is going to take.
0: As always, I must stress this, as always with a new variant, there are many things that we just cannot know at this early stage. But our scientists are learning more our By hour. And it does appear that Omicron spreads very rapidly and can be spread between people who are double vaccinated. There is also a very extensive mutation, which means it diverges quite significantly from previous configurations of the virus. And as a result, it might at least in part reduce the protection of our vaccines over time. We're not going to stop people travelling. I want to stress that. We're not going to stop people travelling. But we will require anyone who enters the UK to take a PCR test by the end of the second day after their arrival and to self-isolate until they have a negative result. Second, we need to slow down the spread of this variant here in the UK because measures at the border can only ever minimise and delay the arrival of a new variant rather than stop it altogether. So in addition to the measures we're already taking to locate those who've been in countries of concern over the last 10 days, we will require all contacts of those who test positive with a a suspected case of Omicron to self-isolate for 10 days regardless of your vaccination status. We will also go further in asking all of you to help contain the spread of this variant by tightening up the rules on face coverings in shops and on public transport.
2: Okay, that's British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing uh, some of the steps they're taking to try to stay a step ahead of this. So how can we try to stay a step ahead of this? How did we end up with this variant in the first place? And what kind of a response is necessary? Joining us for some perspective on that side of things is Dr. Zane Chagley. He's an infectious disease physician at St. Joseph's in Hamilton, also an associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Chagley, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank hey it was kind of scenario i think maybe we were all sort of fingers crossed hoping to avoid but you know hope's not a strategy i guess either was was maybe this inevitable to some extent
1: yeah i mean look you know, there were there was going to be consequences of, of neglecting vaccinating and and pretending everything was going to be okay in parts of the world where vaccine rates are low where a lot of people live with underlying medical conditions like hiv where there's, you know, poverty and, and we know this disease has struck the people at the the lowest end of the economic ladder as, as hard as anyone else. Um, you know, a, a lot of us knew that something was coming. We saw a, a, a prior variant in South Africa in, in beta and another one in C1-2. And, you know, those were relative false alarms in the sense. But, you uh, But, you know, that variation was going to continue to happen if we didn't address the underlying problem. And and here we are today with a variant that seems like it may have been from a chronically infected patient Mm -hmm. that uh, that, then disseminated out into the the real world.
2: Now, in terms of where we're at right now, and I, I think it's trying to find that balance between, you know, genuine concern and caution, but also maybe waiting, being patient, not overreacting yet at this point. But what we know... Does seem problematic. The mutations uh, that, that this particular variant has are, are associated with those things we're worried about, like transmissibility or immune evasiveness. What have you seen so far that that concerns you? What are you still watching for, waiting to find out?
1: Yeah, so you know, we've had lots of variants today, and you know, the whole map of them genomically, and and some have had a lot of mutation. I think the difference here is Number one, it's been described in a period of rapid, rapid growth, which really, you know, in reality is showing that, uh, you know, that this may have an advantage over what's circulating predominantly Delta. Um, and number two, yeah, just the fact that it, it has not only what we think would be the, the skeleton of a uh, of, uh, variant that could, you know, infect faster or potentially even, you know, evade some degree of immunity, but it seems to be infecting a number of people in reality. And, and again, that combination of the two is the early red flag that something is going on here. It's not just the virus itself, but it seems to be a little bit about how it's spreading and, and really you know, how it became a fairly you know, rapid growth in the Gauteng region of South Africa and, and really starting to show up in other regions of South Africa as well.
2: And you know it's it's interesting because South Africa, and I think to its credit, has been very vigorous in in trying to understand what they have on their hands. They've been very open and sharing all of this, and and I think you know their quick work could make a huge difference internationally. But inevitably, some of the the blowback falls on them, right? The the travel restrictions and and all of that. So, what, what do you make of that side of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's nothing to say that this originated in South Africa. They were the first to notify. And again, they're the canary in the coal mine because they are, you know, one of the few places in the the African subcontinent that has access to High-level genomic surveillance that is doing kind of ongoing surveillance of the population, uh, and you know they often pick up with what's happening in the continent. And so, you know, you you even though the blame is being placed on them, and certainly some of the growth they're seeing is is being is, you know is being described in South Africa, it may not be the origin, right? It may be mm-hmm. Southern Africa, but you know we have a case apparently in Belgium that is from Egypt, which is six thousand kilometers away from Johannesburg. Okay. Um, you know. This may have been circulating in the African continent for some time. It's just, again, South, South Africa discovered it and it agreed. Like it's, it's egregious that we ask countries to share their data, to be international partners, to be, you know, alert for something going on. And the response inevitably across the board is, well, just don't travel here anymore. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, you guys have to figure it out yourselves now.
2: When it comes to, to, you know, you touched on vaccine equity um, and access to vaccines, and and I wonder now if this poses even more of a challenge because I think it, A, underscores the importance of vaccinating the world, but it's certainly almost going to increase the demand for booster shots in mm-hmm. countries like Canada. So we're we're, we're in a bit of a, a tug of war in that sense, aren't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, and and you know, again, you know, it, there are uh, uh, places in in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, South Africa is probably again the prototype of one that's been able to approach vaccines relatively okay and and have mm-hmm. good access to its population. But but you know, places surrounding like Namibia, Botswana, Mozambique, which have had very minimal access to vaccines and and have really you know also suffered from the consequences of medical distrust as well. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is that, right? You know, again, if our global response is going to be, well, we need to revaccinate ourselves and, and use the supply of incoming vaccine again to direct them into boosting our population so that we as individuals can stand up uh, and not suffer the consequences of this, it's missing the point, right? You know, this, there's no, there's no, uh, uh, you know, this is not going to be the last one. There's no guarantee this is the end of it, right? If we don't continue to turn around, you know, look, in two months, we might be having the same conversation again, saying, oh, why did this happen? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, this puts a lens on what many of us in the scientific community have been talking about, about rational use of booster campaigns, using it in people at the highest medical risk. But understanding the stockpiling of vaccines has significant challenges to global supply. And, and you know, unfortunately, as a Canadian, We generate zero vaccines for the world, yet are a complete consumer of everything that's come to our soil. So, you know, we have a duty and responsibility as a taking nation to say how much are we willing to take versus how much are we willing to either give back to COVAX or not order in order to make sure that those orders get filled in places that are really in desperate need, that are not getting their supply.
2: It's an important side of it. And, you know, this comes at a challenging time, obviously. I mean, Canada has been relatively stable, although Ontario, Quebec, some parts of Canada have seen case increases as of late. Obviously, there's some European countries that are not doing quite well at the moment. Uh, and this is all before whatever challenge this this variant mm-hmm. might pose to us. Plus, we've got, you know, the, the challenging winter months ahead. So th- this could be um, a rocky few months here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, there there may be some element of waning and, and you know, so be it. If people have more symptomatic illness, you know, that to really change a lot in a young person. We know in Ontario, even despite everything that's happened to date, there's been nine people in the ICU total in the last 11 months in the vaccine era that have been fully vaccinated and six that have died. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to put those numbers in the context of how we then approach our decisions over the coming weeks and months, especially as we're a center in the world that can actually real-time monitor our vaccine effectiveness. We get reports every two weeks. But again, that rationalism is, is going to be important moving forward. Uh, and, you know, there are still great reasons for people to get their first two doses, which is going to be even more important moving forward. Um, but again, we have to start taking a look at this pragmatically. Is what are vaccines going to change about what's coming up over the next three to four months? Uh, and i would argue significantly that getting one or two doses into people that are you know have not been vaccinated is going to be a heck of a lot more important than getting low risk under 50 year olds with a third dose of vaccine where you know the the consequences of it aren't going to necessarily lead to any healthcare utilization uh, other than you know people feeling a bit unwell and being at home for a few more days
2: you know, Canada is is an interesting position because, as you say, I mean, we're we're big consumers of vaccines, we're big purchasers of vaccines, but we're not really producing them, and and maybe that's why we've sort of left it to others to sort out uh, the the countries where vaccines are being produced and the companies that are producing them. But what what role do you think Canada can play here? Look,
1: I I give you the example of India, right? India. Yeah. Uh, gave vaccines to Canada as part of our initial AstraZeneca COVID Shield rollout. Right, um, they went through a devastating Delta wave where there's estimates of five million people that have died. And guess what? After going through their population, after manufacturing their own vaccines for nearly, you know, their entire population, they are giving back to Covax because they know that's the ethical thing to do. That their contracts need to fill to fill the Covax network. And I think that is an example to us, right? We stockpile vaccines. A lot of people are saying, well, we have these vaccines our soil. They're going to expire. We may as well use them. Well, yeah okay fine you can make the argument for that but the 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 underlying question is is why do we have a stockpile of vaccines why are there 14 million doses lying about in canada and we've wasted a million doses in the vaccine campaign so far you know those are real fundamental questions that we have to answer and and be accountable for And, and again experience is just showing us how fragile the situation can get without a global pandemic plan
0: if you want to hear more